Season 4, Episode 55, After Hours with Dr. Rob Coons. Welcome everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, meaning that it's an after-hours episode. And today, I'm interviewing a guest on the show. And earlier this month, we began Barfield Month, speaking to Owen Barfield's grandson. And today, we're continuing by chatting with Professor Rob Coons. Robert C. Rob Coons is a professor of philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin where he has taught for 33 years. He is the author or co-author of four books, including Realism Regained and The Atlas of Reality, A Comprehensive Guide to Metaphysics. He is the co-editor of The Waning of Materialism and co-editor of the Neo-Aristotelian Perspectives on Contemporary Science. He has been working recently on the Aristotelian interpretation of quantum theory, on defending and articulating Thomism in contemporary terms, and on the arguments for classical theism. Dr. Coons, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. Now, I first came across you through a video where you were presenting a talk which was called Tolkien, Barfield, and Neoplatonism, How Metaphysics Molded Middle Earth. Epic title, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And as someone who's been wrestling with understanding Owen Barfield, your talk was really great for me for two particular reasons. Firstly, it helped me connect Barfield to the rest of the Inklings. I said this to you just before we did the talk. I understand Barfield better through Lewis. He, 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 he's my on-ramp because mm-hmm. some of Barfield's ideas I found kind of hard to wrap my head around. So by connecting it to the rest of the Inklings, I found that really helpful. And secondly, you helped me understand at least one of Barfield's ideas a little bit more clearly than I had heard it expressed before. And so because of all of this, I really wanted to get you on during Barfield month to talk, talk us through some of these major ideas in your talk. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's a, it's a real uh, honor to be, be part of this podcast. You've had some great, great guests in the past, I know. <laughs> Thank you. Well, let's move on to some housekeeping for today's episode. Our quote of the week, it comes from Surprise by Joy, where Lewis was talking about his relationship with Barfield. He wrote, There is a sense in which Arthur, that's Arthur Greaves, and Barfield are the types of every man's first friend and second friend. The first is the alter ego, but the second friend is the man who disagrees with you about everything. He is not so much the alter ego as the anti-self. Of course, he shares your interests, otherwise he would not become your friend at all. But he has approached them all at a different angle. He has read all of the right books, but has got the wrong thing out of every one. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the next thing is our drink of the week. And since I've got to think hard about Barfield, I am going with some of my favorite, some of my Lagavulin. Uh, are you drinking anything? Yeah, I've got a, um, something called Peacemaker. Uh, it's a local Austin beer, Austin Beer Works. Wonderful. Sort of amber ale. I'll actually be in, in Texas in, uh, in a month or two, so I'll keep my eyes open for it. <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of great beer here in Austin. Now, we don't have any new Patreon supporters today, so let's just cheers and get into the meat of your talk. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) But before we jump into the the main contents of your talk, would you mind telling us a little bit about your history with the Inklings in general and Barfield in particular? 
Right. Yeah. So it goes way back. I, I remember reading The Hobbit when I was in middle school, junior high. That would be back in the uh, early 70s. Um, and uh, just loved him and loved, I just read everything. I've, ever since then, I've read everything I can of, of, of Tolkien and about Tolkien. Um, read then Lewis in high school. Um, I remember, I think Mere Christianity was my first introduction. Also loved that and have been a huge Lewis fan ever since. So Barfield came along much later. And um, I think this will come up a bit later as well. I, I started teaching a course on Tolkien and philosophy, actually at the University of Texas. I think it was started around 2007, the first time I did it. And um, ran across a book by uh, Ferlin Flieger, who's a Tolkien scholar at University of Maryland uh, called Splintered Light. And, and she goes into the connections between uh, Tolkien and Barfield in some detail. So I mean, I had heard of Barfield through reading about Lewis and his experiences and knew, knew about the great debate between, between them about God, but I hadn't really looked at, at Bar Barfield's work until I, until I read that. And that put me, sent me to look at um, the book, uh, Poetic Diction, especially by, by Barfield. That's the one I've looked at the most, most closely. So in your talk, you connect Barfield and Tolkien with Platonism. If somebody hasn't come across Platonism, what actually is it? Right. Well, so it, it follows from the work of Plato. <laughs> and as I guess it's, uh, what is the character in, in the Narnia Chronicles who tells the kids? Uh, Professor it's Kirk. It's all in Plato. Professor, Professor Kirk. Kirk. Yeah, exactly. I don't know right. what they teach right. them in these schools. Yeah, it's all in Plato. And basically it is, right? Uh, I think it was Arthur North, North Whitehead who said that all of philosophy has been a footnote to Plato, which is a bit of an exaggeration, but, uh, but still there's a, lot, there's a lot of truth to that. So, um, so Plato's work... Um, well, it, it introduced to philosophy an idea that's become very influential, which is the idea of the ideas, <laughs> which is that behind all of the blurring, buzzing confusion of, of the world as we experience it um, in, in, through our senses and through other modalities, there are eternal and unchanging archetypes or forms that are uh, expressed through, through this, this experience. And the most important of those have to do with our ethical lives, uh, the form of the good, the form of justice, the form of the various virtues. So it's a way of, uh, of embracing a kind of ethical realism, uh, the reality of the ethical, uh, in, a, in a very sophisticated sort of way. So he's doing so in the context of a kind of challenge to all of that from materialism that we have his day, as kind of sophisticated proto-scientific materialism of his day. Um, it's been very influential throughout history and when Christians began really engaging with the Hellenistic culture in first, second, third centuries, uh, they generally, when they looked at the different philosophical schools of the ancient Greeks, found the Platonists to be the most sympathetic, the one in which, with which they had the most in common. And your, and your talk title actually speaks about Neoplatonism. How does that yes. differ from regular Platonism? Is it like yes. Coke and Diet Coke? <laughs> yeah, so the relationship between Platonism and Neoplatonism is somewhat controversial, uh, but essentially there's a school of thought that arises in the Hellenistic world in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries AD. So it's after the time of Christ. Uh, there's a particular thinker who may or may not have been Christian uh, named Demonius Sacchus, who was really important in the very early 3rd century. Uh, he was the teacher of uh, Plotinus. Plotinus is the big name, the Neoplatonists. He's the, one of the great 
philosophers of the ancient world, one of the three or four great ones, really. Uh, and also uh, Origen, a Christian theologian, was one of his students as well. So this, this was a time when there was actually a lot of interaction between pagan philosophers and Christian philosophers, especially around this Neoplatonic school that was organizing in Alexandria. So there's two things, I think, that uh, Plotinus contributes that the Christians then pick up. And one is a particular idea of God as being simple, absolutely simple, uh, metaphysically simple, the one, as, as uh, Plotinus puts it. And that becomes extremely influential uh, all the way up through Thomas Aquinas and then beyond. Uh, and then the other idea that is very important for Augustine, actually, that he gets from Plotinus is the so-called privation theory of evil. The idea that, uh, that evil is always an absence of a good. It's never something positive in its own way. And as I said, it's very influential for, 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 for Augustine because uh, he had become a Manichaean. And uh, the Manichaeans you know, believed that there were two equal and opposite forces, a good force and a bad force, a good God and a good and evil God. Uh, so they, they really thought of evil as something positive, right? Something real in itself. And Plotinus says, no, no, it's, it's always an absence of negation. And that, that idea also gets carried forward by a number of important Christian thinkers, including Boethius, and uh, a man named Pseudo Dionysius. Uh, the Aragonite, um, right? Yes, right. Um, who um, writes several works of, of philosophy and uses the name of Dionysius as the, who is the, the, the man that uh, Paul converts in, in Athens in, in Acts. Uh, so, and, and people in the Middle Ages, and, and I guess a lot of people, some people even today, believe that actually was the Dionysius of, of the Bible who wrote these philosophical works. And so that, that gave a tremendous amount of authority to Neoplatonic ideas within, within Christian thought. Excellent. Thank you. But in connection with Tolkien, I think it's the it's the privation theory of evil that I that I was really alluding to primarily here. Gotcha. Thank you. That that really actually helps cl clear it up because you can't hang around in Catholic circles without hearing Aristotelian and Platonism and all this kind of yeah. stuff kicked around. And I never quite understood what the difference between Platonism and Neoplatonism was, but that's really cleared it up. Good. Good. Now, before we talk about your talk, how is it that you came to lecture the Cambridge Centre for the study of Platonism? Um, I've got several friends there at, at Cambridge. Uh, there's a young man, a young man named William Simpson, who uh, has worked with me on the, especially on the quantum mechanical uh, project recently. But he's all he also shares an interest in Tolkien and the Inklings. And uh, I also have a former student there, a former undergraduate student who took one of my early ver versions of this Tolkien class, and who was doing theology there at Cambridge. So I think I think both of them may be involved in mentioning me as somebody who had an interest in talking. Cool. Well, you kick off your talk with five theses about Christian philosophy and Tolkien. So that's probably a good place to start. What are these five theses? Okay, good. So um, they go from being the, I would say, less surprising to more surprising or unique. Uh, theses. So the first one is that Tolkien definitely had some philosophical and theological views that influenced his work. I would go with that. Mm -hmm. I think everybody agrees with that. And that's, uh, that's almost universally true. Of, uh, that's true of almost all significant authors. Um, secondly, this one's already somewhat controversial, that Tolkien saw his, his fiction, his legendarium, as, at least in part, a way of propagating that theology, that mm -hmm. philosophy. Um, some, I got some pushback on that, but I think, um, I mean, well, the third point will help clear that up, <laughs> uh, which is the, the third point is that Tolkien's fiction was a kind of embodiment of that philosophy or theology. So unlike um, someone like Ayn Rand, let's say, where 
um, you know, you have, you have to interrupt the plot in order for the main character to give you some uh, objectivist philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that never happens in Tolkien, right? No, there are no theological uh, lectures in the Lord of the Rings, but the philosophy and theology is incorporated into the story itself. And this is why the story isn't perverted in order to perform some propagandistic purpose, right? It's rather the story as story is what propagates the philosophy. Absolutely. And that really ties in with something a former guest of our show said, uh, Michael Jehosky. He speaks about Tolkien's work as incarnational and yes. the, the message is the medium, that there is something exactly. baked into the story in the very way it's constructed, which is what Tolkien is trying to communicate. Yeah. And that actually leads to my fourth point, which is that a particular philosophy, and this is where it connects with Barfield, a particular philosophy drawn really from Barfield guided Tolkien in performing that incarnation, so to speak, performing that kind of uh, alchemy <laughs> in which philosophy is converted into story. And then, and then fifthly, I argue that to really understand the impact that Tolkien has had on the modern world, understanding all this philosophical background is really crucial. Helps, helps to explain why he's been as, as effective and as, as impressive and important as he has been. So if Tolkien's philosophy is so important, what actually is it? Yes, right. So this is where I do tie it in in the lecture to the Neoplatonists I was just talking about a few minutes ago, um, Plotinus, and then uh, from Plotinus to um, Augustine. So when Augustine talks about the Platonists as somebody that he, that he borrows from, he means Plotinus predominantly. He, doesn't, he didn't really have Plato. He didn't have the, he didn't have the Platonic dialogues, but he had these, he had these uh, Latin translations of these Neoplatonic philosophers. Um, Boethius, who did have the Plato, actually, um, but he, uh, in, in the Constellation of Philosophy, I think, uh, very clearly enunciates this privation theory of evil, that evil is nothing, evil is a kind of absence, and a lack. Pseudonite uh, Dionysius we mentioned earlier, and Thomas Aquinas. So there are all these different channels by which this, this philosophy is propagated. And, and again, the two, the two things really are, are the things I mentioned, which is uh, from Plato, the idea of an archetype, these, these eternal forms. And then secondly, the idea of the privation theory of evil. Those are the two things that I've primarily been talking about. Um, and some people are a little confused about the privation theory of evil. Um, some, some think that, uh, that it, well, you might think that it's almost denying the reality of evil, right? Saying uh, as, as though everything's actually wonderful, <laughs> kind of Pollyanna-ish uh, picture of the world. And that's not certainly what, what Plotinus or what uh, to, to Barfield or Tolkien uh, uh, believed in. Uh, I mean, they thought that obviously evil was a reality and a terrible thing, but that it was not something wasn't a positive reality of its own, so to speak. It was always a, a twisting, a perversion, uh, a, resulting in a kind of a deformity in, in something real, something good. So, so that this has the implication that it's possible for something to be absolutely and completely good, which is in fact what God is, but it would be impossible for something to be absolutely evil. Mm. So even the devil can't be absolutely evil. Uh, nor can Sauron, right? Because they have being, essence, intelligence. That's right. There has to be, there has to be some of the remnants of that for them to be at all, right? Uh, it's twisted and deformed, but it, there's something good there in, in everything, absolutely. So um, that's one of the elements of Neoplatonism that I wanted to talk about. And the other one, has, well, actually, there's, there's another theme that's sort of related to the first one. And this does go back to, to Plato as well, that, uh, that the good is characterized by a kind of harmony. And, and evil by disharmony. And so that consequently, when you have good people, they are naturally inclined to be harmonious with each other because they're, they're participating in the good. Whereas evil people are necessarily gonna be disharmonious, not only with the good, but also with themselves. 
with, with internally and, and among themselves. And this, of course, is a theme we'll see in Tolkien's work to a large degree. Um, and then there's this, again this idea of Plato's theory of the forms of uh, these of these universal archetypes, uh, these eternal ideas that uh, that 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 necessarily shape and form uh, our world and our experience. Um, and that and that you see, and, and in fact, the Neoplatonists had actually developed a fairly elaborate theory of how these archetypes are uh, sort of emanate into uh, lesser and lesser imitations or copies of themselves. So there's kind of a process of, of participation and of imitation, which involves an element of declining, right? So, so you have God who's the perfect good. Nothing he creates can be as good as God necessarily, right? And there are, you know, angelic beings that are much greater than us and, and there's us and there's things below us. So, and, and the things in the subhuman world also reflects God's glory in a way, but to a lesser degree than we do. So, so there's some sort of an idea of here of a chain of being, so to speak, which is all anchored in this um, process of reflection and participation in, in, the, in, the, in the forms themselves. So those are, the, those are some of the main themes that I, that I drew, drew on. That's excellent. Listeners will be very familiar with the, the privation theory of evil, because Matt and I have spoken about it relentlessly. Uh, oh, good, good. A, a couple of seasons ago, we read through The Great Divorce, which was this scene again and again and again, the idea that yeah. somebody had taken something good, twisted it, and now they were this shadow of a, of a person because yeah. they had a distorted view or pursuit of some form of good. Yeah. And that theme is just everywhere in Tolkien's work, right? I mean, you just throw a dart at Tolkien's work and you'll hit something that, that reflects <laughs> that, right? Uh, in the lecture, I talk about the ring wraiths who, you know, were all originally were just ordinary human beings, right? Uh, and presumably virtuous human beings who, who were corrupted and twisted and distorted and have become, you know, under the domination of these rings. And in the process, they're really slipping further and further from reality. They're becoming shadowy, barely existing entities, right? Not really capable anymore of thought or will of their own. And, uh, and, and you know, their invisibility is in a way just a reflection of the fact that they have such a tenuous hold on, on reality. Mm. They're, they're, they're nearly, they nearly don't exist at all, right? Uh, and you know, that's, that's true of all of the evil characters, right? You know, going all the way back to Morgoth, right? Um, you know, they, that, they, that they are originally good, right? And, uh, and that as they, as they turn away from God, they degenerate lots of ways, right? Uh, that, that, that process is a natural one of, of, because of the privation theory of evil. This year, I'm reading through the Silmarillion for the first time, and I've just mm. passed the section where it's alluded that the origin of the orcs are the fact that these were elves that were stolen and corrupted. Yeah. Right. And earlier, when you were talking about uh, the, the, the harmony, that good naturally lends itself to harmony, whereas yeah. distortion evil doesn't. At the time of recording, we just finished recording an episode about the letter in the Screwtape Letters, where Screwtape is railing against silence and music. Yes. And he says, hell wants to fill the world with noise. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. And that theme, again, is, is all through Tolkien, right? So music, song, those are the positive things. And, the uh, you know, um, Saruman's, you know, machinery generates all this noise, this racket and that... Uh, uh, yeah, reflects that lack of certain of, of uh, harmony, and of course that this this disharmony among the evil and harmony among the good again runs through the Lord of the Rings constantly, 
right? So, um, you know, if, if the evil characters in the Lord of the Rings could have gotten together and coordinated their actions properly, they would have won for sure. Right? <laughs> so the, and, and their, their, their mutual rivalry uh, is, is the natural result, really, of, their, of evil. Right? Um, not, even the good characters, there's not perfect harmony, of course, because they're all flawed. But there's much greater tendency, right? The fellowship of the ring, right? Mm-hmm. That's possible because these are fundamentally good people. Yeah, and good tends to fail in Tolkien's Legendarium when they don't come together, when everyone's doing their own thing. Right, right. Let's move from talking about the Inklings in, in general to Owen Barfield in particular. After all, it's yeah. Owen Barfield month. Now, I'm assuming anyone listening to this podcast will have listened to the previous episodes, uh, but just in case they hadn't, we'll just give us a two-minute introduction. Who was Owen Barfield? Okay, so Owen Barfield was a friend of C.S. Lewis from their college days. So they were at uh, they were at Oxford together, I think in 1919, and then they've been friends from then throughout uh, throughout Lewis's life. Um, very close friends. And um, Barfield was part of the Inklings, really one of the important members of the Inklings group. Uh, there were times in which he was not so active because he moved to London and then and then back to Oxford. So he wasn't always in Oxford as, as continuously as, as Tolkien was. But he, when he was there, he was certainly a pretty active participant. He also, um, he, Tolkien and Lewis, uh, throughout the um, t- 20s, um, from 1920 through, through 29 or, or 30, uh, engaged in extensive d- discussions and debates about the existence of God, especially, uh, with Lewis being, of course, the atheist initially, uh, the skeptic. And uh, both Tolkien and uh, Barfield were, were theists. Tolkien, of course, Catholic, uh, Christian. Uh, Barfield uh, initially uh, had a somewhat esoteric sort of theology. He, he draws from this uh, anthroposophy of, of Rudolf Steiner, important uh, Swiss thinker of the 20th century. A uh, bit more pantheistic, I think, in its tendency. I'm not, I'm not an expert in anthroposophy, so, so don't press me on the details. Uh, I, I, don't think, I don't think that Barfield was a strict Steinerian either. I think he, he, you know, he did his own thing. Eventually, uh, Barfield does join the Anglican Church, so he does. He doesn't break. He thinks of himself certainly as a, as a Christian, eventually, but um, initially, somewhat more eclectic and syncretistic in a way, in a way than than Tolkien certainly would have ever been. So it was an interesting trio, actually, right? Um, and they persuaded, I think, Lewis first of all that, that there had to be a God, but especially that that the um, Christian revelation the things that uh, are mythical in a sense, that is that they have this narrative story structure to them and that that, that, and that, and that, that echoes stories in lots of other cultures and, and, and periods. And I think for Lewis, that had been a stumbling block, right? Because he had thought that this just, you know, Christianity is just our mythology, right? It's no more credible than if we had been ancient Greeks and believed in Zeus or, or what have you. And, and I think both Barfield and Tolkien helped convince him the myth of that kind could be a vehicle of truth, of really important truth. And of course, Tolkien's view is that the Christian story is the true myth. So it's a thing to which all the mythologies of the world uh, were ultimately pointing. Uh, and, uh, and that I think uh, eventually, of course, that, that persuades Lewis. And that, of course, has a profound impact on his approach to theology and to literature as well. In your talk, you connect Tolkien to Barfield's idea of Ancient semantic unities. Yeah. So, what are ancient semantic unities when they're at home? This was my big wrestling match in your talk, trying to wrap my head around what this actually was. Yes, right, right. So, 
I mean, I think, uh, first of all, I'll connect it to the Platonism and, and uh, Neoplatonism that we were talking about earlier, right? So the idea that there are universals, right? That the human mind can grasp naturally, that we have a natural disposition to understand, uh, to be illuminated by. And I think Barfield takes that for granted, right? Barfield takes for granted that our human language is, is a way of connecting our minds to these universals, these ideas uh, of Plato. But at the same time, you know, he's very sensitive to the fact that our language does, as a medium, does sometimes distort that connection to those, to those forms. And so we have to be more reflective and intentional about language in order to connect uh, effectively to the forms, to these, to these enduring truths. Right? Now, Barfield thinks that, in some sense, ancient human beings, right, especially before the rise of Greek philosophy and then especially before the rise of modern science, uh, that they were in a way more in tune with these Platonic universals than we are, because they used words which, from our point of view, it looks like they're using words in an ambiguous way with multiple meanings, mm -hmm. when in fact, they are perceiving unities that were missing in the world itself. So it's not that they're using these words to mean different things. It's rather they're using the word to mean one thing, but the one thing that manifests itself in these three or four different ways. Right? So that's, that's what he means. So the classic example, the one that he uses in, in poetic diction is the word uh, spirit. Okay? In, this is interesting. In, in both Hebrew and Greek and I think in other languages, Latin, uh, the same word can, uh, indicates wind, uh, breath in a breathing organism, and the, the spiritual or intellectual or higher capacities of the human being, and maybe ultimately God, right? So, um, so when we look, you know, if we look back at Hebrew or ancient Greek, we say, oh, very interesting. They use this word, you know, ruach or, or spiritus for all these different things. Why do, you know, why do they do that, you know? Uh, and, um, and Barfield says, you know, you know in fact, um, there is something spiritual, something really there in the wind and in breath and in our intellectual capacities and in God. Uh, and so they, the, the word is, in fact, an ancient semantic unity, right? And so in order for us to be able to better see those unities in the world, we need to, in a way, recapture that more ancient mode of thought, okay? The modern mode of thought, starting with the Greeks and then accelerating in the, in the scientific revolution, is to functionalize language and to draw sharper and sharper distinctions between things in ways that are very sensitive to their use. So from a modern point of view, right, using a special word just for electromagnetic radiation right, and distinguishing that from light in general, or this, oh, this confused stuff that the ancients were talking about, you know, is a, is a progress, right? And it is progress in a way, right? Because, you know, you, you, would, you know a lot more about physics and, and whatnot because we've, we, we now precisely refer to, you know, electromagnetic radiation uh, instead of just talking about light in a way that covers spiritual enlightenment, right, as well as physical light. Um, and it, it may, of course, it gives us great, great technical facility as well in the modern world. Because you can make distinctions. 
Exactly. That's right. And, you know, and for Francis Bacon, right, knowledge is power, right? So it's all about, you know, getting that kind of control over nature. And of course, Barthes is not saying that's bad. We've got to stop doing that, right? But he thinks that there has to be a balance that's, esta- that's established between that modern, you might say, analytic approach, breaking things always down into finer and finer distinctions, and a more ancient synthetic approach uh, that sees these underlying unities. So that's that's the basic idea. And then the second thing that sort of flows from this, and this is where it really starts impacting Tolkien, is that Barfield sees this as um, connecting to literature in a very important way. So in particular, he makes a distinction between two kinds of metaphors, true metaphors and adventitious or factitious metaphors or pseudo metaphors, you could call them. So a true metaphor is where I'm using a word uh, in, in order to recapture one of these ancient semantic unities. So I talk about light and I talk about light in, in relationship, let's say to my spiritual life or to an intellectual insight that I'm getting. And I'm very consciously using that term because I believe there's really something in common between physical light by which we see and the intellectual light by which we understand and the spiritual light by which we know God and so on. On the other hand, an adventitious metaphor is one where you just take two things that aren't really the same and you just juxtapose them kind of by force, so to speak. Uh, nothing wrong with that in general, but, but it's not the same kind of thing that to distinguish this, right? And, you know, I, I use, I think, it, I don't know if I use this in lecture, but in some of my lectures I use um, Woodhouse's example of, I think it's uh, Madeline uh, Glossop, who says that the, the stars are God's daisy chain, right? Okay, so that's a, that's a very bad <laughs> adventitious metaphor, right? Uh, daisy chains and stars really have nothing in common. There's no ancient semantic unity there, right? Uh, she's just sort of taking these two distinct ideas and synthesizing them um, conceptually, right? As opposed to um, perceiving through the word, an underlying, an underlying unity. So much, much modern poetry, you know, involves um, adventitious metaphor of various kinds. And, um, but whereas um, I think Barfield thought that more ancient forms of poetry, especially epic poetry, often made use of these more of these true metaphors. Um, and then there's a corresponding comparison or, or relationship between uh, what uh, Barfield calls myth and allegory which is in a way the same distinction now at, a, at the level of a whole story, so to speak. So a myth would be something that, although the details obviously don't correspond to, to realities, nonetheless, there's a kind of deeper semantic unity to the story itself. It, it, it opens up for us something that's real right, uh, through the story. Whereas an allegory is something where you have to have a decoder ring, right? I mean, mm. this is this, this is that. And then unless you know what they're representing, you can't understand what's going on, right? So in a, in a myth, you don't need the decoder ring, right? You can just jump in and enjoy the story on its, in its own terms. You'll actually be, become illuminated, enlightened through that without knowing it, right? <laughs> without, without realizing what's going on. Whereas in the allegoric, you have to actually decode it first, and then maybe you learn something or maybe you don't, depending on whether you agree with the, the principle of the allegory. So I think this is the thing that, that had the influence on Tolkien. Tolkien heard this presented in 1928, or I guess maybe read the book in 1928. And in a letter, or in a letter, Lewis talks about Tolkien talking to him about this. And Tolkien told Lewis, look, this changed my whole outlook reading that book. Uh, and he said at one point that uh, through, through Barfield, he saw some things which were such that after seeing them, there's all sorts of things you, you can't say anymore. 
right? So there were lots of things that he would have been inclined to say about, about mythology that he now just couldn't say anymore because of what Barfield said. And I think that, uh, and, and I got this, I get a lot of this from Fliegerf's book, uh, that, uh, that this is really uh, key to understanding that why Tolkien kept pursuing the project that he was doing and why he developed it in the way that he did, I think. What I see now, uh, when I look at Tolkien in light of this, is these true metaphors all over the place, right? And it's not that he, you know, he, it's not that he creates adventitious metaphors a lot, hardly ever does, but he has a few uh, true metaphors, right? Especially like light and darkness is the one I talk about a lot, but just, he just rings that change over and over and over again through the whole work from the beginning to end, light, darkness, light, darkness. And um, because uh, that is enabling us to participate in this, or to understand these ancient semantic unities between the different kinds of light and the different kinds of darkness, which are really are connected. And of course, this all has a theological backdrop, right? I think for Barfield and for Tolkien both, which is that the whole created world is a kind of metaphor, right? Uh, deliberately created by God to convey these, these unities to us, right? So it's no accident there's such a thing as light that we see by light. Just, it didn't sort of happen and then, oh, let's use that as a metaphor for, for illumination from God. No, that was created by God as a metaphor, right? As genuinely like <laughs> the illumination that we get through, uh, through the scriptures or through, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, likewise, you know, breath was created by God as a metaphor for the spiritual side of things, right? It's not, not something human beings have just kind of juxtaposed uh, creatively, but rather we discover it, we uncover it. Yeah, that seems to be the key element. It's the difference between something being synthetic and being something that we're discovering. Yeah. Are we making up ideas like this season's fashion or are we discovering truth, yeah. which is ancient, objective and baked into the very nature of reality? Yeah. This is all starting to make more sense to me now. The, my first introduction to Barfield was what Lewis writes about the arguments that they had had, their great war, mm -hmm. and particularly this idea of chronological snobbery. Mm -hmm. that Lewis had bought into the idea that if something is new, yeah. it's got to be better than old. Right. You know, old yeah. ideas fall out of date. We get newer and better ones. Yeah. And Barfield said, no, that's really snobbish. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the ancients actually saw reality in some things more clearly than we do. And so if I'm understanding yeah. you correctly, this idea of ancient semantic right. unities is he's, is he's saying that we can see in the way that the ancients used their language that they saw things in reality and connected dots that we don't see these days. Yes, exactly, that's right. We see that in the fossil record of language and the way that it's used. Right. And that this can inherently point us towards some truth that we don't get from just simply connect, either making endless distinctions between things. Because right. the more distinctions you make between things, the more you sort of blown them apart. There isn't a unity anymore because you've emphasized the distinctions so much. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and what, the way that Barfield puts this, I think is very persuasive, actually, is, has to do with, uh, you say, sort of working out the prehistory of human language and, and, and of mythology. And so the, the sort of materialist-minded theorists of the late 19th, early 20th century that Barfield's reacting to, they said, well, look, language began as a kind of code for physical objects in their immediate environment, right? So no, no metaphor at all. Everything was just perfectly literal, right? Rock, bang, you know, and so on. <laughs> uh, and then they, somebody invented metaphor and they started you know, adding more meanings to things and so on. And so, so Barfield said, okay, if that's right, then you would expect that as you go back in history, and as you go back through the reconstruction of these languages, things get more and more literal as you go further back. 
And in fact, the opposite is the case, right? As we go back, at least by modern, in a modern mindset, it looks like things are getting more and more figurative, more and more figures of speech, less and less literal language. And then Barfield, so then you have to suppose that, well, in that next last period, which you can't see, it was then it suddenly went all the way to literal, right? So there's just this mm-hmm. explosion and then gradual decline. And Barfield said, it looks more natural to think it started out, you know, in this, what looks to us like this pluriform kind of language. And then we've kind of uh, forced it into these channels of, 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 of single languages. And of course, what Barfield says is, in fact, it's, it's well, again, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're projecting back to the ancient mind, this kind of synthetic metaphor, right? As though they just sort of invent things you know, arbitrarily connecting things instead of supposing, as you said, that the ancient people were actually seeing something that we're now not seeing because we have the kind of pragmatic scientific blinders on. I mean, one of the ways Barfield puts this too, I think it's very interesting is he distinguishes between two mindsets, two ways of thinking, uh, a poetic principle, he calls it, and the prosaic principle. And his view is that really we need to have a balance between the two, right? But that the modern world especially has put all the emphasis on the prosaic, right? And has lost this, this poetic. And so I think Tolkien said, yeah, that's okay, this is my mission, right? Is to revive that poetic principle in modern people, help modern people to recapture that ancient mindset and to see again these unities that we've that we've missed, that we've lost over time. You spoke about how Tolkien uses this a little bit in his legendarium, particularly in the area of light. Yeah. And as I mentioned, I'm going through the Silmarillion. So yeah. I have seen light everywhere from the the beginning of Arda all the way through to the creating of the lamps, the trees, the Silmarils, yeah. uh, and ultimately in Galadriel's file that she gives to Frodo. That's right. Why is Tolkien doing this? What What is he, what's his goal? <laughs> this is a very, very, very modern question. What's he trying to do here? What's yeah. he hoping to achieve? Yeah, no, I think I think the idea is that he really does want to help us to recreate uh, that ancient mindset, to be able to see the unity there between these different forms of light, uh, between the unity between physical light and, and spiritual and intellectual light and so on, for example. Um, the other thing that I, th- I might mention here is another way in which he, he's, he, I think this is original Tolkien, although it, it certainly fits into the Neoplatonic picture, is that Tolkien um, thought that it was important to model in the story, the very same kind of enchantment that he's trying to achieve himself with us. So in other words, he, he wants legendarium to help us to recover this, this more ancient mindset. So it's important that in the story, we see some people being liberated from a kind of prosaic principle uh, through enchantment. And this is, this is basically what's happening to the hobbits as they interact with, with, the, with the elves with uh, Galadriel and with, uh, and with uh, Elrond and so on. So the um, elvish song and story, right, uh, carries the hobbits out of a purely prosaic way of thinking about things and enables them to, you know, to see the world in a different way. And by reading a story in which that's happening, the thought is that that actually is more likely not to happen to us. We, we kind of uh, were able to recapitulate in a way what's happening to Sam and Frodo, for instance, and Lothorian, in a sense. And this is, an also, this is an idea I think that Tolkien thinks is there also in the ancient stories, right? So why do the ancient stories talk about this so much? Because that's what they're trying to do to us, right? So therefore, they, they represent it within the story as well. Wow, that's a really great idea. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's comments about reading George Madon's Fantasties. He described it as baptizing his imagination. There was something about those words on a page 
that somehow changed him. Yeah. And when you were when you were talking about uh, light and this idea of transformation earlier, and particularly as soon as you mentioned the word Galadriel, I thought of Gimli mm-hmm. and how this mm-hmm. tough as bricks dwarf mm-hmm. has his heart changed by encountering this lady of light mm-hmm. that somehow manages to transform his consciousness in such a dramatic way. I'm reading about all the issues that elves and dwarves have with each other. <laughs> right. Yes, right. Exactly. And they go in the Silmarillion. Yeah, that goes way back. And I'm now thinking about the point in the story when we see a dwarf encountering a lady and ha- these, these prejudice- prejudices are just swept aside, yeah. blown aside, that he is now quite literally enlightened. Mm-hmm. I mean, another element that sort of supports the theory, I think, is something that, uh, that I got from Tom Shippey in his, some of his works on Tolkien, mm-hmm. which is that uh, Tolkien spent a lot of time uh, ensuring that um, the, the language that the characters are using uh, resurrects ancient terminology, right? Yeah. And, 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 and all the elements within the story. So there's hardly anything that, that really Tolkien himself invented. I mean, orcs, elves, dwarves, it's all, all this comes from ancient mythology. Again, the thought is that um, that is important in order if the story is going to accomplish this Barfieldian task, right? Of literally taking us back to a kind of dark age mentality, so-called dark age mentality, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of those, of those like Anglo-Saxon ancestors sitting around a hearth, you know, talking about these things. And any Tolkien fan who listens to any Tolkien podcast, they will be very familiar with the idea that in the Tolkien fandom, in the Tolkien world, and you're discussing one of his works, you'll regularly stop and say, this word here, this is an interesting word. Let's have a little look at the etymology mm-hmm. of that word. Yeah. And you then taken on this journey back in time yeah. to see what this word has meant throughout the ages and the things that it connoted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's all, of course, related to Tolkien's idea of, of a subcreation. He really is creating a world that could have existed <laughs> in a detail, right? And no one else has ever, and I don't know if ever will again be able to do what he did, where he's inventing whole languages and not just whole languages, but whole histories of those languages, mm. right? Going back thousands of years and evolving in, in sort of natural ways. And it's, it's mind boggling what, what, what he accomplished. It's like he was trying to run a simulation of what Barfield was suggesting. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. Very, and I think very consciously really doing so. And so aside from being fascinating, What's sort of the bottom line on all of this? What's the impact of this? Tolkien heard this idea from Barfield, thought it was brilliant, and he tried to construct his legendarium along these lines to point back to some of these ancient semantic unities, to point back to language that had now fallen out of date. So what? Yeah. (laughs) You spoke a little bit about what what he was trying to do here, but how do we now receive that as readers? Yeah. When I sit down and read The Lord of the Rings and I have this going on in the back of my head, how does that change my reading of the text? Yeah. I mean, I think it, at the very least, it gives us more understanding about ourselves and why we're responding to the text as we are. At least if, if like me, you really are enchanted by Tolkien's text and just find it you know, life-changing and overwhelming, then, then you want to say, well, what's going on? <laughs> Why is this having such a profound impact on me and my thinking? And I think this, this background kind of helps you understand that. Um, and similarly, it can help you understand why it has an impact on, on other people as well and on the whole culture. 
Uh, and I think it has. I think it's profoundly changed uh, the course of late 20th century in various ways. Uh, I think there's much more um, openness, for example, to certain kinds of environmental concerns right, that wouldn't have been uh, wouldn't have been there perhaps if Tolkien hadn't written um, some uh, more uh, well a reviving of uh, interest, of course, in in, in fantasy itself, and uh, also in um, well, I, I think it's been very important in a kind of pre-evangelistic way. I think it's it's paved the way for uh, for reviving of of a number of traditional, more traditional kinds of, of religiosity, especially within Christianity. So, so it's had a number of, it's had, I think, a significant impact um, politically and socially. Uh, so just to understand how that could happen uh, and have some, some sort of grip on that, I think is, is valuable. And to bring that back to Lewis, I see in your description a meditation and a tool shed mm-hmm. where he describes there's two different ways of looking at things. When you see that shaft of light coming into the shed, You see the little specks of dust. You see the inside of the shed lit up. But you can go and stand in that sunbeam and look all the way out into the wide world, the blue sky, the clouds, and the sun, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And after I would finished listening to your lecture, it made me think of Dr. Michael Ward's Planet Narnia. Mm. Because there he argues that Lewis is trying to communicate the feel and the ideas of the medieval cosmos through Planet Narnia. Yeah. And now knowing that, I appreciate Narnia in a different way. Yeah. And I can switch out of those two modes of just simply enjoying it and then occasionally sitting back and seeing what's going on yeah. and marveling at what Lewis is managing to evoke in me through these subtle word choices and mental images that he gives me. And so I thought in a similar sort of way, seeing these ancient semantic unities inside Tolkien's work I can still enjoy the work just as much as I ever did before. But occasionally I can sit back and realize what is going on inside me could well be due to the fact that Tolkien is connecting me to some, uh, some ancient connections that I am generally otherwise blind to. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. So again, it's not an allegory, right? It's not as though you need these Barfieldian clues in order to enjoy the story, because otherwise it's just a meaningless, you know, a bunch of things happening one after another. Uh, it, it has the impact it has, right? Uh, it doesn't depend on our knowing the philosophical background for that to work. But the philosophical background can help us understand what's going on. <laughs> Why is it mm. affecting us this way? And that, I think, is, is, is a, itself a valuable thing. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we send people to go and watch your full lecture? Um, I guess just one thing I mentioned is that when I started doing this you know, about 15, 16 years ago, there wasn't that much secondary literature and scholarly work on Tolkien, actually. But now there's been an explosion the last 10 or 15 years. And so uh, I, I really feel like I'm not an expert <laughs> on Tolkien or Barfield for that matter. Uh, so, um, you know, I encourage people to look into that. I mean, there's the Tolkien Society, there's uh, uh, the Wade Center at Wheaton College and so on. There are a lot of good resources that are pretty readily, readily available these days. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Coons. My pleasure. Thank you. Where can people go to watch the lecture itself and find out more about you and your work? Yeah, so I've got a website, robcoons.net. It's pretty easy to find. And um, I've got, I think I've got all the podcasts and videos uh, linked link there. Wonderful. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. And as always, thanks to all of our top tier supporters, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. As always, Pints for Jack t-shirts are available on our website, pintsforjack.com, as are our Pints for Jack laser etch glasses. Thanks again to Dr. Coons for joining us today on Barfield Month. And listeners, please join us again next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.